I'm John Mooney and welcome to The Dark State. This podcast is brought to you through the generous financial support of our subscribers on Patreon and Apple Podcasts. If you wish to contribute and gain access to more exclusive episodes, please do subscribe. And now, on with the show. Afghanistan has been lost to the Taliban. Will it once again become a safe haven for Islamic terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda? Or might the US withdrawal inspire a new generation of jihadists? To discuss this complex issue, I am joined on the line from Washington by Bruce Hoffman, the acclaimed author, critical thinker and expert on terrorism. He is a professor at Georgetown University and a senior fellow at the US Council on Foreign Relations. I'm John Mooney. Welcome to The Dark State. Professor Hoffman, it's an honour to have you join me from Washington and I know many of my listeners are looking forward to hearing your views. So could I begin, after two decades of war, the Taliban have once again seized control of Afghanistan. What are your thoughts on what's likely to happen in the weeks and months ahead? Disaster in one word. Uh, I don't think the Taliban have really changed at all. I think they've become certainly savvier and more worldly over the past 20 years, but I don't think their core beliefs or indeed their implacability to any interpretation of religion or of law or of lifestyle has has changed at all. In other words, I don't think they're any more tolerant. Um, They are much more cognizant that they have to coexist in the 21st um, century. So I think there's a... uh, there's a profound learning curve there mixed with, with cynicism that they have to say and do what they believe will buy them entree into uh, the international system. Uh, but I, I really think it's just the, the, the minimal of verbiage as well and very little in terms of, 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 of practicality. I mean, look, they, they, they serially violated even the very minimal agreements that they had committed to uh, during the, the two plus years of the negotiations in Doha. So all of their promises, I think, are really completely meaningless. And of course, the most consequential one for the international community, in addition to this, this theological totalitarianism that is now being visited upon Afghan society that had grown and, and, and prospered and offered opportunities to the diverse array of minorities in Afghanistan and certainly uh, to women and girls there, you know, will disappear. But I think the big question outside of Afghanistan is, you know, whether that country will once again become a haven for terrorists. And we already know the answer. I mean, less than a month after Kabul has been taken. I mean, it's, it's quite clear the United Nations, in a very important report they issued last June, had said that as the Taliban was already occupying more than uh, half of Afghanistan, that some eight to 10,000 foreign fighters were already converging on Afghanistan even before the Taliban's reconquest and turning it into this, 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 this uh, haven for, for terrorism. And that pace will only quicken. And this doesn't require any great predictive talents in the least because we've just seen it repeatedly over the past 30 years after the struggle against the Red Army 
and the Soviet Union's occupation of Afghanistan in the 1980s and the 1990s, we saw once again foreign fighters gravitate to wherever they felt they could find safe haven, but also to the next conflict, as it were. And we saw how the foreign fighters, the Arab Afghans, as they were called, departed from South Asia and went to uh, Yemen, to the Caucasus, uh, to the Balkans, and to uh, North Africa. Of course, in 2003, uh, after the United States invaded Iraq, that became another foreign fighter or jihadi magnet where we saw foreign fighters converge there. Towards the end of the decade, we saw foreign fighters uh, converging on North Africa as well, um, spreading to the Sahel, for instance. During the Arab Spring, foreign fighters gravitated to Syria um, and to, to, to Libya. Um, of course, during the time of the Islamic State and the short-lived caliphate, that was yet another exerted yet another gravitational pull to foreign fighters. And this is precisely what we already see happening in Afghanistan before the Taliban was even in power. So once in power, and especially with someone like uh, Sirajuddin Haqqani, uh, one of the world's most wanted terrorists is the acting interior ministry, which also controls a lot of the finances and a lot of the both licit and illicit finances. Um, you know, in the catbird seat, as it were, that I think this is a pattern that is only going to intensify and entrench itself in the new Afghanistan. So do you believe that al-Qaeda or groups like Islamic State, that they may use Afghanistan to arise again, to begin uh, carrying out attacks using that country as a base? Is that likely to happen? Well, I'll answer it in two respects. In the first respect, it doesn't matter what I think because the United States Intelligence Committee believes uh, within uh, a year to two years, and sometimes now they're saying perhaps it'll be even less, that al-Qaeda re will reconstitute itself in that country. In fact, in this morning's newspaper, in the Wall Street Journal in the United States, there was an article um, quoting an unnamed intelligence official as saying exactly that. Um, but in my view, uh, of course, uh, repeatedly, Al-Qaeda and the Taliban have reiterated their solidarity with one another. Uh, they've done so publicly on many occasions. I mean, the negotiators at Doha were very open that, uh, that they would control Al-Qaeda, or at least they would claim that they would attempt to control Al-Qaeda in terms of exporting international terrorism from Afghanistan. Uh, but also in private, they assured Hamza bin Laden, probably the most radical of all of bin Laden's progeny and the one that was his supposed heir apparent until he was killed in a U.S. drone strike um, in Afghanistan that, you know, they, they promised him that as a result of these negotiations, they will never forsake al-Qaeda or never break with al-Qaeda. And then even I, I, I've spoken to one of the U.S. negotiators there who I've known for almost 20 years. Uh, who's a good friend, and he said to me, I asked put the same question to him that you, you just put to me, and he said to me point blank, look, I sat across the table from the leader of the Taliban who was saying to me, Al-Qaeda are our friends. We will never abandon them. So everybody says this. I don't think we should delude ourselves mm -hmm. by believing we have a, a new, kinder, more gentler um, Taliban that is going to break its relations with Al-Qaeda. In fact, in the West, we don't understand on multiple occasions 
Bin Laden, al-Zawahiri, and the other senior al-Qaeda commanders have all sworn the bayat, the oath of personal fealty and personal allegiance to the head of the Taliban. And this is a sacred vow that is not easily broken or that's, that's, that's walked away from. So we have to understand that they are joined at the hip. And in fact, in recent years, I would argue that the Taliban's success, the rapidity of its reconquest of Afghanistan, was indeed the result of a very important force multiplying factor that al-Qaeda endowed the Taliban with. Now, that's to say that the numbers of al-Qaeda operatives fighting with the Taliban may have been small in the low hundreds, but they brought skill sets and abilities um, in tactics and weaponry, but also in intelligence, in propaganda, and the manipulation of social media, that they endowed the Taliban with, and that facilitated the Taliban's lightning reconquest of Afghanistan. Uh, this, you know, wasn't just serendipity that this that this happened. As much as numerous American officials want to say, well, we this couldn't have been predicted, and it happened more much faster than we would have imagined. I mean, one reason it happened that fast is that the Taliban was assisted by front-rank terrorists with tremendous skill and resources like al-Qaeda and like the Haqqani network that I would argue is actually the bridge between al-Qaeda and the Taliban. So their relations will be very close um, and will not be broken. And I think at the very minimum, uh, the best we can hope for is that Afghanistan only or simply becomes a base for the destabilization of South Asia, which is sufficiently worrisome and dangerous because, of course, Twice in the early years of the war on terror in 2001 and in 2008, terrorist attacks from Pakistan against India, not carried out by al-Qaeda, but by groups closely associated with al-Qaeda, uh, nearly drove India and Pakistan to the brink of nuclear confrontation. So this is, this is, to me is the best case scenario, which is not a very rosy one at all. But the worst case is that even if Afghanistan itself does not become a launch pad for terrorist attacks against Europe or the United States, al-Qaeda now will have the breathing space and the opportunity to plot and plan and to strategize and coordinate and encourage and facilitate the operations of its franchises in various corners of the globe. And that's where I think the threat will come for attacks in the West or the United States, not necessarily directly from Afghanistan, certainly indirectly, but probably from al-Qaeda franchises located elsewhere. And indeed, you have recently written that there are now four times as many Salafi jihadist terrorist groups designated by the US as foreign terrorist organizations than there were on 9-11. So this is a significant problem. And you've also suggested that people shouldn't lull themselves into believing that these groups no longer wish to attack the US or the West because uh, because they, they now control Afghanistan. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is completely delusional. Um, uh, look, twice in the past three years, members of Al-Shabaab, the Al-Qaeda franchise in Somalia, which is probably the technologically least proficient of the Al-Qaeda franchises, twice in the past three years, members of Al-Shabaab have been arrested, both in the Philippines and in an undisclosed African country, undertaking 
precisely the same kind of flying lessons that the four pilot hijackers from Al-Qaeda on 9-11 undertook in the United States uh, 20 plus years ago. So, you know, we may think that we've moved on from the start of the war on terrorism, the clash clash of civilizations, the forever war, a lot of the memes that have been very common over the past two decades. This is present history, present day history for them. And we see them going back to the well of tried and true tactics, such as crashing airplanes into buildings. And I'm not saying it's far more difficult. I'm not saying that it's any easier for them to do so. Indeed, it's far more difficult than it is to pull off that kind of attack than it was on September 11th, 2001. But it strikes me as nothing less than astonishing that they haven't given up, that they're still fixated on the same targets and still going back to the well to try to use those same tactics to once again inflict what they see is a crushing blow or a decisive blow against the West in the United States. Uh, what are the implications for the U.S. withdrawal for the region and I suppose the projection of U.S. power in the region? You've written and you've stated that this could be into, that the withdrawal from Afghanistan could be interpreted as the as you know being the beginning of a golden era for jihadists. Could you maybe give me your thoughts on that? Explain that to the listeners. Sure. Sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, it's, it's very simple is that, um, in one of his last, not his actual last, but in one of his last publicly released video tape addresses in October, 2004, uh, bin Laden was just before the U S presidential elections that year. Bin Laden had, proclaim that. He said, look, I, I know we're never going to defeat uh, the United States militarily in this war. We're going to enmesh them in a war of attrition that I am confident will be successful. I mean, I'm paraphrasing. He said that I'm confident will be um, successful in the same way that we bled the Soviet Union while its Red Army was in Afghanistan and sent its sons and daughters homes in body bags, the same way that we bankrupted its economy and set in motion the chain of events that led to the collapse of the Soviet Union and the demise of communism as a global ideology. He said, we're going to do the same thing to the Americans. Now, in 2004, we thought that was rather far-fetched. But after the 2008 economic crisis, after the economic upheaval that we've seen following the global COVID pandemic, after we've seen successive public opinion polls at the United States that over 70% of Americans in a very nonpartisan way, uniquely in this day and age in the United States, that there was broad agreement amongst both Republicans and Democrats that it was time to get out of um, Afghanistan. Uh, you could see that if Bin Laden were still alive today, he'd arguably or perhaps very sadly be a very happy man because what he predicted in 2004 and even before has in fact come to pass. And what I would argue is this is going to infuse the Salafi jihadi terrorist movement with newfound confidence, with newfound momentum, and convince them that bin Laden was absolutely right, that if they just hunker down and continue to fight on, despite the odds against them, that eventually they'll be as triumphant and as quickly as the Taliban war. And I'm not saying that's necessarily going to be the reality. 
But what I am saying is that the Taliban's victory indisputably has infused the broader terrorist movement, and not just Salafi jihadi, which is to say Sunni terrorist groups, but other terrorist groups too have taken a, a leaf from to the Taliban's page. I mean, we saw the general secretary of Hezbollah, which is a Shia terrorist group, and nominally the 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 uh, Salafi jihadi, the Sunni terrorist enemy. But uh, the secretary general of Hezbollah, uh, Hassan Nasrallah, also praised the Taliban and also predicted that this was the beginning of the end for the United States. So even if that isn't the reality, there are any number of adversarial groups and leaders out there that are taking the Taliban's victory as not only a green light for them to soldier on and carry on with their struggles, no matter how impossible or like or unlikely success may seem, but point to the Taliban's example of how if they soldier on, eventually they'll be successful, but also embrace from their point of view that this was a divine, that this is a divinely ordained struggle and that it's not a mere mortal's place to question God's will. So therefore, not only do they have to fight on, but if they fight on, eventually they will be rewarded, much as the Taliban have been. It's been 20 years since 9-11. Can you provide your assessment on the success or failure of the war on terrorism? As I ask that question, I'm very conscious of the fact that the UN's invasion of Iraq, for example, set up events that led to the formation of Islamic State. When you look back on the past 20 years on this war on terrorism, what's your assessment of it? Largely successful, I mean, in the sense that, at least in the United States, the most important metric is and has always been, has there been another catastrophic attack along the lines of 9-11 against the the U.S., or even for that matter, Europe or elsewhere? And clearly the answer to that is, is no. But as you pointed out a minute ago, there are four times as many Salafi jihadi terrorist organizations today as there were on 9-11. So obviously, you know, whatever we're doing is, as the Israeli government describes its counterterrorism strategy as mowing the lawn. It's not solving the problem. It's just sort of saving it, mm-hmm. saving it off. And the fact that there are four times as many groups does not strike me as being terribly successful. It, it suggests to me that despite the fact from the very start of the war on terror, uh, the President Bush had declared that it would be a war of ideas. We haven't done a very good job of prosecuting that dimension of this of this um, of this struggle. But in in more specific terms, I think one of the greatest successes of the war on terror was the immense international cooperation there was in counterterrorism that really followed it and that remained in place for nearly two decades. And I worry that. The fact that uh, the way the United States handled the evacuation and withdrawal, uh, that many European countries have complained about a lack of consultation, that what was perhaps one of the most precious um, and perhaps perishable successes in the war on terror, this international cooperation and trust in the United States, the leadership and essence falling behind United States leadership is something that we may see, at least in the realm of terrorism, compromised in the future as countries will, you know, act more independently and perhaps go their own way and thus result in the kind of um, fractionation that existed in terms of counterterrorism in the 1990s, and which, of course, gave a tremendous advantage 
to the terrorists, because almost all terrorism nowadays is international, even what in the United States we call domestic terrorism, violent far-right extremism, for example. I mean, groups like the base, which of neo-Nazi white supremacist group that uses the same name, the English name of, of Al-Qaeda, um, is, is clearly international. I mean, the leaders and American citizens living in St. Petersburg, Russia, for example, mm. they recruit people from multiple countries. They have ties with radical groups in other countries. So in the 21st century, what we're finding is that there's no purely domestic terrorist threat any longer. They all have transnational connections. Um, I mean, the same with, you know, uh, Antifa, for example, I mean, which, which President Trump was very much fixated on, of course. Antifa was a European creation uh, that jumped to the United States. Um, so there are all, there are these bonds and these ties, which, which is to say that international or transnational cooperation on counterterrorism is more important than ever. And I think there's a lot of concern that that may have been damaged by the U.S.'s handling of the withdrawal from Afghanistan. The U.S. counterterrorism response to 9-11 attacks yielded some remarkable successes, but also failures. You've recently argued that the, the top terrorist threat, though, which America now faces, is domestic rather than foreign. Why do you believe that to be so? Well, one simple explanation is that um, the availability of firearms and ammunition in the United Mm -hmm. States creates a a domestic threat that easily becomes very challenging for for law enforcement and the authorities when you're dealing with people that are well-armed and trained in the use of, 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 of firearms. I mean, for many terrorist groups around the world, the most formidable challenge is acquiring weapons whether through the black market or smuggling or stealing them from um, state security forces, armories, they have to acquire weapons. In the United States, um, this is, this is not really much of a challenge. I mean, there's there's weapons that are pilfered from us military stockpiles, but just the, the, the type of weaponry and amounts of weaponry available commercially in the United States is, 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 is quite astonishing. But also, I think we don't have a firm idea of the dimension of the threats in this country. There's no domestic legislation, which means the federal government really doesn't keep statistics or data on this threat. I've seen estimates of at least uh, 25,000 members of, of militias in the United States that are armed and trained and see themselves as paramilitaries. I've seen other estimates of 75 to 100,000 uh, political extremists as well. Uh, given that 600 people are still uh, waiting trial or very recently started to be sentenced in the United States for the January 6th, uh, 2021 uh, insurrection at the Capitol. Um, estimates of radicals throughout the country in the thousands may not be exaggerated. And this is exactly the problem. 20 years ago, the United States just faced an external or foreign terrorist threat. Uh, today, we face uh, an internal and domestic one as well as an international one, which means that there's more pressure on resources. There's more pressure on the attention of law enforcement and the authorities. The challenges of tracking multiple groups across a variety of different ideologies um, is much more intense today where it was not non-existent, but certainly uh, at a far, far lower level in 2001. So 
this presents, I think, enormous challenges to the United States because terrorists are always most emboldened when they think they can sneak under the radar or when they sense that their enemy is preoccupied or distracted by another issue or by another threat, they become overconfident and believe they can pull off a successful attack. So this means that our vigilance is even more important now than it's ever been. Do you regard the threat posed by these far-right groups, these conspiracy terrorists or anti-vaxxers even, as being equal to that posed by jihadists, or are they a different type of threat? Well, they're equal in terms of that they have to be taken very seriously because, you know, we have a short memory that up until the 9-11 attacks, the single most lethal terrorist incident in the United States was the 1995 bombing of the Alfred P. Murrah Federal Office Building in Oklahoma City where 168 persons perished. Um, That may not be on the scale of the nearly 3,000 persons killed on 9-11, but it was still uh, an enormously consequential terrorist attack. So I think we have to take the threat of both seriously because any any even single loss of life is, of course, a a profound tragedy. Um, So we have to take both seriously. I would say the difference is that uh, our foreign enemies, like the Salafi jihadis, are far better... um, organized and coordinated than many of the domestic threats, which is a far more diffuse and far more um, disparate and sporadic type of of threats. So they're they're different kinds of threats, but again, I wouldn't minimize either of them. Finally, what is the biggest challenge now for the West in terms of formulating a strategy to counter terrorism? You've got some very interesting views on this, which are based on your widespread experience and a almost a pragmatic view of, of terrorism in that it, it doesn't end. We, we just manage it. Can you talk me through what you believe now is the biggest challenge that we all face? Seeing the world as it is rather than we would like it to be is one of the first ones, making sure that policy aligns with um, intelligence. I mean, I don't think it's all that often intelligence failures, I mean, there's certainly major intelligence failures like um, you know, the, the weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, but other things that are called intelligence failures are actually the failure of policymakers to take seriously the intelligence that's presented to them. Was 9-11 an intelligence failure? In early August 2011, uh, 2001, rather, uh, President Bush received a briefing from the CIA, Bin Laden, um, Bin Laden uh, ready to attack the United States. I mean, very rarely are you ever going to have intelligence that pinpoints the day or the target or the time, but it wasn't an intelligence failure when they, they're saying an attack is coming and we failed to take adequate, um, adequate uh, preparation. And that's what worries me t- today is that, um, you know, frankly, Prime Minister, former Prime Minister Tony Blair got it right when he said that we've kind of embraced, and he described it as these imbecilic phrases like ending the forever war, and he pointed out, but the, the war was being fought completely differently over the past several years than it had been on 9-11. For example, there were 110,000 U.S. troops in Afghanistan in May 2001 when Bin Laden was killed. Within the next five years, that number had decreased to less than 10,000. And then it decreased still further during the Trump administration. So, yes, one can talk, you know, in these in these handsome phrases like, forever wars. But in fact, the United States 
I would argue, had found the right balance. I mean, clearly invading and occupying countries with hundreds of thousands of troops was a failure and was not sustainable. But I'm perplexed today that somehow a few thousand troops to train and equip and prepare um, local host nation forces to better counter terrorist threats in their own country, and that has been successful in preventing the rise of of terrorist groups or at least checking their advance, that somehow this has now become a luxury that we can't afford. Um, You know, if hundreds of thousands of troops occupying and invading countries wasn't the solution, I firmly believe that uh, a troop level that's set to naught is equally as unsustainable and will prove equally as unsuccessful. So I'm perplexed why a strategy that has worked so well uh, for the past, you know, roughly decade or so, we're all of a sudden dispensing with and adopting new phrases like over the horizon capability, which we have already seen severely tested. Uh, Both the Washington Post uh, and New York Times have extensively covered that second drone strike in Kabul that they argued did not kill a major ISIS figure who was planning a terrorist attack and was loading up his car with explosives. But they're arguing that at least their investigations have revealed that it killed an innocent family of 10, with seven of whom were children. Mm. Now, we don't know the end of that, but this is something that I think, you know, we don't know the final resolution. The Pentagon still says it was, in their terminology, a righteous strike. It may well prove to be the case, but I think that this entire episode and the controversy and the uncertainty that clearly exists at this moment underscores the challenges we're going to see in getting the intelligence needed to make for very effective and a very effective and a successful over the horizon capability. And if it's shown that an innocent family was killed, well, and this would be to me, to my mind, a very early warning sign that perhaps this is not the best strategy going forward. But we don't know at this moment, but I think that's part of the problem is there's so much uncertainty. Um, and we're depending so much on the roll of the dice going in our favor that, um, you know, we're entering a very, I think, uh, dangerous period uh, where certainly, as I said earlier, the terrorists feel more emboldened and will certainly test our, our resolve, perhaps even more so, believing that the momentum is with them at this moment. I don't think anyone who is familiar with this issue would disagree with you. Professor Hoffman, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. And on behalf of myself and the listeners, I'd like to thank you sincerely for joining me tonight and providing such expert analysis. Well, you're very welcome. Thank you very much for having me. And that concludes today's edition of The Dark State. If you enjoyed this episode, we would appreciate it if you could tell a friend or post a review. I hope you will join us again next week.